0: I'm sure many of you know the feeling of what it's like when you've eaten just enough food. Like when you know if I take one more bite, like I'm going to feel sick. And sometimes the food's good enough to where you take the bite anyways. You're like, I know I'm going to feel sick. Like I know if I eat this dessert after I've already gotten full on all the food that I've just had. Like I'm going to feel sick, but that chocolate cake or those mashed potatoes or those ribs or, or whatever it is, fill in the blank with the thing that you love. Like, you know, it's just so good. Like I've got to have more. I'm going to get another helping. I'm going to get the third helping. I'm going to go back to the line for the fourth time, you know, where depending upon where you're at, it doesn't matter if it makes me sick. Like I've got to have more. It's just that good. And so, you know what that feeling those like a lot of times when you've had just a enough. Like when you're okay, like you're not feeling sick, like you don't feel like you have to unbutton your pants or anything like that. You know, when you've had just enough and you know, when you've had just enough, oftentimes you'll go sit down or you'll lay down somewhere and you could fall asleep just like that because you've had just enough. Like it fills you up and it makes you feel good because you're satisfied. Now, if you didn't have enough to eat, then you start looking for more things to eat. Like sometimes if my wife makes these really healthy meals, you know, I, I'm still looking for more to eat. And so I'm getting cheez out of the cabinet and, and cookies out of the cabinet and, and other things like to eat. Because she's made this little, you know, wimpy salad thing, you know, like that's healthy for her. But, but I'm like, I, babe, I'm like twice your size. I need a lot more to eat to feel satisfied. OK, so I, I, I need a lot more. And so I go looking for more to eat, You could use the word sufficient when you've had just enough to eat, like you don't want any more because you're going to feel sick. You, you don't need any more because like you've had enough to eat. You feel full. You could say you've had a sufficient amount of food. See, sufficient comes from the Latin verb meaning to meet the need. If something is sufficient, it has met or satisfied that need. You've had enough or as much as needed. And in that way, and with that idea we would say the Bible is sufficient. And that's what we're gonna talk about tonight, the sufficiency of the Bible. We don't need any more, and we definitely don't need any less in the words of John in Revelation chapter 22. We don't add anything to it, we don't take anything away from it. The Bible, the revelation of God that we have in the scriptures is sufficient. And so that's what we're gonna be talking about tonight and why we believe that. You see, we've been in a series called Creed. And Creed is just a, a short word That means uh, a, a short compilation of Christian theology that's been put into an easy to understand and easy to remember and memorize kind of way. And so all throughout church history, Christians have gathered the most important Christian theology and simplified it into what we call Christian creeds. And so that's what we've been talking about this in this series is a creed that we must agree on. You see there's a lot of Christian theology and a lot in the scripture that we can disagree on that we can see differently and still have fellowship. We can still have community, we can still be on mission together. There's a lot that we can disagree on. There's lots of minors that we can disagree on, but there's a lot of majors that we can't disagree on. Like if we're going to be in community together, if we're going to be on mission together like as a church, as the body of Christ, there's a lot of majors in the scripture that we can't disagree on like God being creator or Jesus being God, or this one that we focused on in this series, the Bible is God's word. There's a lot we can disagree on in Christian theology. We cannot disagree on this as followers of Jesus. We must believe that the Bible is God's word. And so we've been talking in this series about the Bible being God's word and why we believe that. The Bible says you need to have a a reason. You need to be able to have a reason for the hope that you have. You need to be able to have an answer for the hope that you have. And and so in this series, we've been talking about and trying to give you some answers as to why we believe the Bible is God's word. Why it's our standard for life and faith and practice. Why it's what we preach from. We don't just go grab some random books or, or books for other prophets or teachers. No, we teach from the Bible because we believe the Bible is God's word. And we must agree on that. And so we've talked about in this series, the authority of the Bible in week one. Last week, we talked about the History of the Bible, and tonight we're going to talk about the sufficiency of the bible. Now, this is a different series. If you've been here, you know, this is a little bit different. We're talking about theology, doctrine, systematic theology. And so there's a lot here. There's a lot to take away from. A lot of times we're trying to like get you to see one thing and understand one thing and we talk about that one thing and we and and we describe that one thing and we tell stories about that one thing. Okay? In this series, we're talking about systematic theology. We're talking about doctrine. And so there's a lot of things. And so, it can be difficult if you're not paying attention and like following along with us. So, as Brandon said earlier, I would definitely jump on the app, follow along with the message notes because there's a lot tonight, lots of verses. A lot of times, we're trying to take like one verse or one passage and talk about it and tell you what it means and how to apply it to your life. Tonight, like the last two weeks, tons of passages, lots of points because we're talking about why we believe what we believe. And so, we're talking tonight about the sufficiency of the Bible. And here's what Paul said, or Peter rather said about the sufficiency of the Bible in second Peter chapter one, verse three, talking about the promises and the commands of God. Here's what Peter said, referring to them by his divine power, like by God's power to reveal himself to us through Jesus and in his word. Those are the two supreme revelations of God, Jesus, the son of God, and his word that he's given to us. So by his divine, divine power, God, and again, in context, Peter's saying, referring to his commands and to the promises of God, God has given us, watch this, everything we need for living a godly life. Some translations say for life and godliness, God has given us everything we need. Everything we need for life and godliness in his promises, in his commands, in his word. He has given us everything we need. That's what we mean by sufficiency. He's given us all we need. We can't take away from it. We don't get to add to it. He's given us all we need for life and godliness and faith and church practice. All those. He's given us all we need in his word, in his promises, in his commands. And so we're gonna talk about what all we mean by everything we need. And so we're gonna talk about the sufficiency of the Bible. And number one, when we're talking about the sufficiency of the Bible, we're referring to its sufficiency for revelation. It's sufficiency for revelation. We're talking about God's inspired word. We would say it like this. The canon of scripture is final, it's done. There's no more new revelation of God. Now you might say, but I hear God speak to me and God tells me things. Okay, we're gonna get to that here in a little bit, okay? We'll we'll address that here in a little bit. But when it comes to new revelation of like who God is and what he's like and what he wants and what he's doing and what's going to happen, there is no new revelation about God and who he is. We have it, we have all we need. Everything that God has given us is all we need. So we would say the canon of scripture, the inspired books, going back to week two, the inspired books of scripture is closed. There's nothing to add to it. We don't get to take away from it and we don't get to add to it. The canon is closed. You might say, well, where do you get that idea? Where, where, where are you getting this? Let the, the canon is closed. There's no new revelation of God. Well, number one, we get it from Jesus. If you've been here. This entire series hinges on Jesus. We've started it with Jesus and each week we've talked about how Jesus is the one that has given us the authority of the Bible, the, 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 the writing that we have from the apostles that has developed into the New Testament today. So, so it started with Jesus uh, giving us the authority of the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament. It, it's all been Jesus. Jesus said his words would never pass away. And so in the gospels, We have Jesus quoting from every section of the Old Testament, from the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the major and the minor prophets. If you want to get specific, he quotes from nearly every portion of the Old Testament. You know what he doesn't quote from? He doesn't quote from the Apocrypha. Not once. And so that's why those books, the books of the Apocrypha, are not in our Bible. We have Old and New Testament. We do not have the Apocrypha because we go based on the authority of Jesus. Jesus didn't quote from any of those books. That's why they're not in there. Why is this certain document or letter not in the Old Testament? Jesus didn't quote from it. He didn't give it authority. And so we have in the Old Testament every portion that Jesus quoted from giving those books, those documents, authority. In the New Testament, we've said this each week that Jesus told the disciples in John 14 and 16, they would receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would remind them of all truth, would remind them of all truth and would then lead them to write these things down for future generations because Jesus said his word would never pass away. He said, you will be reminded of all truth. And so Jesus gave the apostles authority to write new scriptures. And so they would begin to refer to each other's writings as scriptures, like equal with the Old Testament, the 39 books in the Old Testament. They would begin to say, Paul's writings are scripture and and Peter's writings are, are scripture. And they would quote from the gospel account saying those were scriptures, making them equal in authority with the books in the Old Testament. And so Jesus gives us the authority and the Old Testament canon and all the books that he quotes from, and then he gives his disciples who become the apostles and Paul, because Paul saw Jesus risen from the dead and was commissioned by Jesus himself, which is what it took to be an apostle, you had to see Jesus risen from the dead firsthand account, and you had to be commissioned by Jesus for a specific ministry. And so because Paul saw Jesus risen from the dead and was commissioned by Jesus, Paul is an apostle too and is recognized as apostle, so as an apostle. So we get this idea of the sufficiency for revelation from Jesus, But we also get it from the New Testament writers. Jude, the brother of Jesus said this, watch this. Defend the faith that God has, watch this, entrusted once for all time to his holy people. This is the brother of Jesus, okay? People like James, Jude, brothers and sisters of Jesus thought Jesus was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy because he was claiming to be the son of God. They literally, the gospel accounts say that his brothers and sisters thought that Jesus had lost his mind. But then when Jesus is risen from the dead and they see him and they touch him and they eat with him and they spend time with him, they realize, no, Jesus is the son of God. He is God. He rose from the grave and they gave their lives saying they saw Jesus risen from the dead. And so Jude goes from thinking his brother Jesus is out of his mind to thinking Jesus is God. And now Jesus is his master and Lord. And Jude, the brother of Jesus, tells us defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time. In other words, God has given us the truth of our faith once and for all time. That's what Jude said. Here's what John said in Revelation chapter 22. We've referred to these verses several times throughout this series. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears these words of prophecy written in this book. Now, theologians will say John's referring to his writings here in Revelation and everything he's seen. But he's also, because of the way he's speaking and in the context, he's referring to the whole of Scripture. And so he's saying, everyone who hears these words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone, watch this, if anyone adds anything... So what's written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share, the tree of life, and in the holy city that is described in this book. In other words, John's saying, you don't take away from this book. You don't add to this book. And if you do, there will be major, serious, eternal consequences. You don't take anything away from it. You don't add anything to it. And so we're not looking for other documents to add in. We're not wondering if there's documents that are, in, that are lost, that are in our Bible that, that we somehow need in order to, to know God and to be in relationship. No, no, we don't need anything else. We've got the revelation of God right here in the 66 books of your Bible. And so not only are we not looking to other prophets or teachers or documents or books or, or whatever, we also don't get to come up with new theology and new truth about God. Your opinion, your ideas, your imagination do not get to come up with new revelation. We are a people as Christians, as followers of Jesus, our faith is based on revelation, not imagination, And so I don't get to come up with new ideas about who God is or or what he wants that are not in line with the scripture that's already been revealed once and for all that's been given to God's holy people. So Jesus said it, Jude said it, John said it in Revelation. Watch what some of the early church fathers, the disciples of the disciples said. Christ is from God. The apostles are from Christ. This is what Clement of Alexandria said. One of the early church fathers, the disciple of a disciple saying, just like Jesus said, father, just as you've sent me, I'm sending them into the world. And so even this early church father, a disciple of the disciple realized there's a difference between me and the apostles. There's a big difference. They write words from God and it's scripture. I can write things, I can say things, and it's not scripture. This goes all the way back to the first and second century. Look what Ignatius said in 117 AD. Again, one of the early church fathers, a disciple of a disciple. I do not as Peter and Paul issue commandments. They can issue commandments from the Lord and it's scripture, but I don't get to do that. You see, even the early church recognized that God sent Jesus and Jesus sent the apostles. And so if it's not from Jesus or if it's not from the apostles or the apostles didn't approve it, then it's not revelation from God that we deem as trustworthy or true. Because there's a big difference. The canon of scripture is closed. And so here's what you can know and here's what you can believe and find comfort in. That if someone knocks on your door, If you read a book, if you hear a message from a pastor, read a book from an author, you get someone knocking on your door, whatever the situation may be, and they say anything different than what's written in these 66 books of the Bible, you don't even have to consider it. You can know it's not true. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to doubt because the canon's closed. Jesus and the apostles said so. And so I don't have to wonder or pay attention. Do I, is, is there a new teaching here? Is there, is there a new prophet here that, that's got this new truth from God that I must hear, that I, that I need to know in order to have a relationship? No. No, you don't need it. You've got all the revelation from God that God wants us to have in the Scripture. Now, we'll get to when God speaks to you and and, and what that means here in just a little bit. That's not what we're necessarily referring to. We're talking about revelation of who God is, what he's like, what he wants, what he's doing, what he wants from you, what his will is, what he's going to do in the future. We have the revelation of God. So it's sufficient in its revelation of God and who he is. Second, we're referring to its sufficiency for sanctification, Okay, now this is just a big word that means to grow and to look more like Christ. It means to become holy as God is holy. Now. You positionally, when you give your life to Jesus, you've been made right with God. You're a son. You're a daughter. You've been made holy and righteous and spotless and without blame. Positionally, you are in Christ. He is in you. And so when you stand before the father, he has taken your sin. He who knew no sin became sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. When positionally you stand before God, you are holy and righteous and blameless. That happens in an instant. It's a miracle of God that he does in your heart when you become right with him. You can't be good enough to be right with God. In fact, it says in Romans 3 that there's only one way to be right with God and it's when you believe in Jesus' payment of your fine through his death on the cross. When you believe, it says, your sin is forgiven and you're made right with God. So positionally, you are holy and righteous. But sanctification is the process now of growing to becoming more like Christ in my daily life. It's changing, it's being transformed more into who Jesus is and the way that he talked and the way that he lived and the things that he cared about. It's the chipping away of the pride and the sin, the arrogance, the immorality, that we still battle with because we still have this flesh the Bible refers to. There's still this war that's going on. And so the process of sanctification is the process of looking more and more like Jesus. It's not becoming more and more saved because you've been saved. When you were made right with God through your faith in Jesus Christ, that's justification by faith. You are justified before God by faith in Christ alone. But now you enter a process, just like when you get married, you make a decision and now legally, boom, positionally, you are married. But now you start this whole life together of getting to know one another and and, and becoming more and more like Christ together. That's the process of sanctification, growing to look more like Jesus. Now, here's what Paul said about the way the Bible does this, about the way the Bible is sufficient for sanctification. In other words, to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus. Here's what Paul said to his disciple, Timothy. Second Timothy chapter three, starting in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. So how much of scripture, Paul says, is inspired by God? Some of it, 60% of it, 80% of it. No, 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 all scripture. Is inspired by God. In other words, originates with God. You might remember to week one, Peter said, No prophecy, no scripture ever came from the writer's or from the man's own understanding. No, no, no. God spoke and men wrote. And so Paul's saying here to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful. What does it do? It teaches us what's true. It makes us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right, and God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. This is just a, a look at the sanctification process. And Paul says, the scripture, all scripture's inspired by the God, the scripture, the Bible is sufficient for sanctification. It does all these things. In our lives. And so let's just simplify it. Let's let's break it down. Number one, the scripture is sufficient for sanctification because it gives us an unchanging moral standard. The Bible gives us an unchanging moral standard. Now in the Old Testament... The nations praised Israel because they had the laws of God. They had a a standard by which to judge what was right and wrong. And so the nations looked at Israel as this unique group of people that actually had the unchanging laws of God. They had a moral standard that was a guide for life, and they were jealous. You know, it's been true of Christians, even in our country's history in the past, where people would look at Christians and would be jealous because we had this unchanging moral standard. We didn't have to come up with what was right and wrong. We we didn't determine that we, we got that from God. And even in our country's history, people would look at Christians. They would look at the the church and there was a wisdom in the fact that we had this unchanging moral standard. That's not true today. (laughs) I don't know if you've realized that Uh, people don't look at our unchanging moral standard and think that's the wisdom of God. That's smart right there. They have an unchanging, no, no, no. Today culture, the nations, if you will praise a changing moral standard, not an unchanging moral standard, but an ever changing moral standard. That's insanity to me. And it is to you too, whether you realize it or not. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples. Okay. When, if you played baseball, if you grew up playing baseball, like I did, you know, like when you're in T-ball The way you stop a play is you can get an out or in T-ball you can run to the pitcher's mound and you can step on the pitcher's mound or home plate and you can kill a play, right? And the runners have to go back to the base they came from if they don't make it to the next base, right? You you, you following with me? When you go from T-ball to baseball, the rules change. And you see kids out there, I've seen my kids do this too. You see kids out there in baseball, in the first year of baseball, when they transition from t-ball to baseball, instinctively go to a pitcher's mound or go to home plate and stand there with the ball and the runners just keep running the bases and they're scoring runs. The rules changed and it was confusing. It's even worse in... T-ball and coach pitch. This is kind of more of a, a present day example that I, I've seen on teams my kids have been on uh, that when they start, first start playing and they're throwing the ball to first, a lot of teams at the beginning of the season, because the rule for some reason hasn't been set, they will throw the ball real short so that it rolls to first. Any of you guys know what I'm talking about? That's a lot easier, right? That's a lot easier throw. It's a lot easier on the first baseman when you're just learning how to play. If you'll throw the ball real short and it just rolls up to you and you catch a short, easy grounder to get the runner out at first. Well, when teams start catching on to this and more teams start doing it, here's what I noticed a couple of seasons my kids were playing. They would change the rule mid-season. And they would start to say, no, 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 you can't just throw it kind of an easy throw so that it rolls to the first baseman. You have to really throw it. You have to show effort to make that throw to first so that it's a real throw to the first so that the first baseman really has to catch like a a ball that's coming at him. I changed the rules and it frustrates people. People get mad. Coaches get mad because they've worked with their kids on one thing, and now they have to change, and now they have to make adjustments, and the kids don't understand, and they still will make the short throw so that it rolls, and then the kid won't be out anymore, and then parents get upset, and now you have all-out brawls and fights over things like this, and if you think I'm joking, just go out to Western Little League or Southwest Little League or Cooper Little League or any of these leagues, and you will see fights breaking out over some of these rules because people don't know the rules, and then the one, the rules they know will change its absolute insanity. And here's what's even worse is when people make up the rules as they go. Now, some of you know my son, Levi, okay? He's 12 now. For his age, he's, he's a pretty big boy. He's a lot bigger than a lot of the kids his age. And here's what I've noticed when they play games outside or if I ever come up and and they're playing games. Okay, the biggest and the loudest usually gets to make up the rules as they go. The little kids don't get to make up the rules as they go. The shorter kids don't get to make up the rules. The smaller kids, the quieter kids don't get to make up the rules as they go. It's the loudest and the biggest end up making the rules up as they go. Well, that's miserable for everyone, right? And no one wants to play and people get their feelings hurt and no one understands how how, how the game works and how the game is played. It's absolute insanity to just let the biggest and the loudest determine the rules of the game and make it up as they go. It's insanity. It's just practically true. And in the scripture, we have a unchanging moral standard that's a guide to our lives. And as we read the scripture and we meditate on it and we pray the scripture, it helps us to see what's right and wrong in our lives. And, and our response is not to bow up and say, no, God, you're wrong. Or, or I disagree with this verse saying, in other words, you disagree with God and putting yourself in the place of God. No, no, we don't bow up to God's word. We bow down and say, no, God, your word is pointing out something that's wrong in my life right now. It's correcting me. And my response is to humble myself and repent of my sin, turn from my sin and begin to pursue you once again. It's called conviction. Conviction. Now, in today's day, a lot of times people say they get their feelings hurt, and and now people are judging them and condemning them and all that kind of stuff because they start to feel bad about their sin. Listen, that's not judgment a lot of times, that's just conviction. God's pointing out something that's wrong in your life, and your responsibility is to humble yourself and pray for God's strength to turn from your sin to repent. And begin to follow Jesus and get your life in line with God's never changing, unchanging moral standard. We don't determine what's right and wrong. God has told us what is right and what is wrong. And as we read the scripture, it begins to point out things in our life and transform us and change our minds and change the way that we live. And in that way, it it sanctifies us. Secondly, Paul says, It provides spiritual growth. You read the scripture and as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, it begins to transform you by the renewing of your mind. Your mind begins to change. The Bible begins to become alive and active in your life. And you begin to think differently, talk differently, live differently when you begin to read the scripture. Growing up in junior high and high school, I listened to a lot of the same music that everybody else listened to. And usually it was was pretty bad. But when I started reading the Bible, really for the first time in my life, I'd grown up going to church and I still did everything else everybody else did. But when I started reading the Bible for the first time in my life, for some reason I started to like worship music. I never cared about it before, but all of a sudden now I like worship music because it's talking about things of of God and it's encouraging me and it's building me up in my faith. And so now I'm wanting to listen to this. Well, at this point in my life, I'm still kind of listening to both. And I'll never forget one of my friends got into my truck in high school when I was a senior in high school. He gets in the car, my radio or my stereo immediately comes on with what the worship music I was listening to. And he says, what the, is this? And so I began to explain what, what God was doing in my life. I didn't care about that stuff beforehand, but reading the Bible transformed me from the inside out. I began to think differently, talk differently, want different things, desire different things. It transformed me from the inside out out. That's spiritual growth. And Paul said, God's word, all scriptures inspired by God, remember what he said? He said, it will prepare you and equip you. In other words, it will grow you. You read God's word, you will grow spiritually. There's no way around it. You read God's word, you will grow spiritually. And then finally, Paul says here in 2 Timothy 3 that God's word prepares us for ministry. He said in 2 Timothy 3, he said, God's word, these scriptures will prepare you and equip you to do what? To do every good work. I love Paul says in Ephesians. He said, You are God's masterpiece. As a follower of Jesus, Paul says, you're, you're God's masterpiece created in Christ to do good works, which God planned in advance for you to do. Like before you were ever born, God had great things for you to do for him, for his kingdom and for his glory. Good works, ministry for you to do for God. You're like, no, 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 that you're the minister. That's what you're supposed to do. No, 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 no. The scripture, the new Testament is clear. Paul says, we, like all of us, we have received a ministry of reconciliation. You've received a ministry. You're, you're baptized and you become a missionary. Like that's true for every single one of us. You go public with your faith in Christ through baptism. And it's like, that's your commissioning as a missionary for Christ. You are his ambassador and God's word prepares us for ministry. And so you could do nothing but read God's word over and over and over and over again and God can prepare you and train you and equip you for the ministry that he's called you to do. The writer of Hebrews says this about everything we just talked about in Hebrews chapter five. He says, you've been believers for so long. How many of us, that, that's true. You've been, you've been a believer for longer than a year or, or two years. Okay, at, at this time, at the writing of the scripture, you would have been a believer for quite a bit of time now. And so the writer of Hebrews says this, you've been believers for so long. Now you ought to be teaching others, doing your ministry. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So what does it look like to go deeper? What does it look like to grow spiritually? You want to go deeper? Well, Hebrews is telling you right here. Those who are deep are those who know the difference between right and wrong because of God's unchanging moral standard. Those who are deep who are mature, are growing spiritually. Those who are deep, Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews, many think was Paul, but, but the writer of Hebrews says, those who are deep should be teaching others. That's what it looks like to go deeper. That's what it looks like to grow spiritually. That's what it looks like to move from milk to solid food, to go from being a baby to being a, a toddler and then a child and then a teenager and then an adult is that you're teaching more and more people. You're knowing the difference easier between right and wrong because of God's unchanging moral standard and all that's happening because you're growing spiritually. And it's God's word that does this in us and through us. And so if you've been a Christian for many years. My question for you is, are, are, are you teaching more people than you were a year ago? Have you repented from sin in your life and do you have an easier time doing so now than you did a year ago or two years ago? Do you hear more from God today through his word like now than you did a year ago or, or two years ago? Is, the, is there growth there. Because that's what God's word will do. It will sanctify you. It will make you more and more like Jesus. Because God's word is sufficient for sanctification. And then finally, last God's word. When we talk about the sufficiency of the Bible, we're referring to its sufficiency for interpretation. Its sufficiency for interpretation. You see, When you interpret the scripture, here's what we mean by this. We're saying that interpretation is the work of the Holy Spirit in which he enlightens men or women to understand and to obey what's been written in the scripture. That's what we mean by interpretation. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that enables you to understand and to obey what's been written in the scriptures. Now you might say, I can do that? Like just me? Like I can understand the Bible and then obey what it says, apply it to my life? Yes, you can do that. You mean I can do that on my own? Yes, you can. Because although revelation is done, the canon is closed, illumination is continual. God, Bringing His word to light and to life in your life. That's what it means for the word to become living and active in you, and it begins to change you and, and transform you. And you read the Bible and're like, "I feel like God's speaking to me. He's revealing things to me. He's telling me things to, to do now. That's illumination and that is a continual process for the rest of your life. As you read God's word and as you pray, God will bring things to your mind. He will put them on your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit as you understand and you begin to obey the Bible and those things will always be in line with God's revealed will in the scripture. They will never be out of line with God's already final revealed will in scripture. And so in interpretation God illumines our minds to understand what's in His Word. In the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, one of the leaders in the Protestant Reformation, recaptured a lot of the old doctrine, the early doctrine in the scripture, as he began to understand the Bible, as he began to read it for himself and as he began to begin to apply it to his life and felt like God was speaking to him. And then he started asking questions of, of the priests of his day and, and, and the friars of his day and say, hey, I'm reading this. This isn't what we're talking about. This isn't, this isn't what I'm hearing. And the priests would tell Luther, hey, you don't need to worry about what's written there. You just, you just do what we tell you to do. You just listen to what we say. And Luther told this priest one time, he said, I'm going to make it my goal that the plowboy will know more than the pope after reading this book. That's my goal. And now you know why they wanted to kill him. And people like William Tyndale, who wanted to translate the scriptures from Latin and Greek into English, they killed him too. They didn't want the common person to know and to understand the Bible. They wanted the, the power and the, uh, the control that came from being the only ones that knew the scripture and were able to communicate them. And so they got to choose what they left out and what they added. And no one knew the difference. Until Martin Luther and the reformers come along and they say, no, 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 no. We're, we're gonna make it our mission. That the farm boy, the plow boy will know more about the scriptures than the Pope himself. And they killed people like him because that became their mission. And so you might be saying, wait, wait. So I have the ability to interpret the scriptures, Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. You have the ability to read the Bible. You may not have ever known this, but you have the ability to read the Bible, to know what it's saying, to understand it, and then apply it to your life. Here's what Paul told Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He said, work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. So, you can interpret the scriptures, but you can interpret them wrongly. And so Paul tells Timothy, there's a right and a wrong way to interpret the scriptures. So you might be thinking, well, then what's the right way? How do, how do I how do I do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is how we interpret. The scripture. This is the right way to interpret the scriptures so that you know what it's saying, not what it's saying to you. A lot of times we ask that in small. Well, what is this saying to you? Well, it's not about what it's saying to you. It's about what it's saying. What is the scripture actually saying? And now I am illumined by God to understand it and then apply it to my life in an individual and personal way. But the scripture is actually saying something. So we've got to figure out what is the scripture actually Saying because it wasn't saying a thousand different things. No, it's saying one thing and it may apply a thousand different ways. You see the difference? And so this is the correct way to interpret the scripture. Number one, we interpret the scripture with prayer. We interpret the scripture with prayer. So before I read the Bible, I'm praying, God, would you help me to know and to understand your word? As I read it, God, what is this saying? I'm asking God, I'm having a conversation with God. After I've read, God, help me to know what your word has said to live it out and to apply it to my life. Interpretation starts with prayer. In Luke chapter 24, verse 45, it says this about the disciples. This is the disciples, okay? Jesus is explaining everything everything to them after he's risen from the dead and then watch what it says Jesus had to do for the disciples. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see, Jesus opens our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand and to interpret, to apply God's word. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. He said, when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Paul's saying, that spiritual things are discerned spiritually. And so we need the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, to help us understand the spiritual things that God has given us in his word. We can't do this alone. We need God to do it in us and through us. It's the process of illumination. And it happens when the Holy Spirit allows us and enables us to understand the spiritual things in God's word. Secondly, we interpret with scripture. We interpret scripture with scripture. No, that's not a typo. That's not a mistake. We interpret scripture with scripture. So first of all, when we interpret scripture, we're looking at just like you do in any piece of work, What is it saying in light of this paragraph? What is it saying in light of this whole book? What is it saying in light of the whole Bible? Who's the author? Who's the audience? What time period was this written in? What's the the culture like? And sometimes you need some help with some of those things. And sometimes commentaries can help with some of those things, but we interpret with scripture. In other words, we interpret it in context. We can't take it out of context. So we interpret scripture with scripture. And here's what I mean by this, okay? First of all, We interpret, we use a lot of scripture to interpret a little. You can take one verse, one confusing verse about something like, say the baptism for the dead. And you could build a whole theology off that if you didn't understand the context it was written in and you didn't take a lot of scripture to help you interpret this one scripture that seems to be confusing or I don't quite understand. So we use a lot to help us interpret the little, because God's word's never gonna contradict itself. We use a lot to help us determine the little. Some people say, well, if you're not baptized, you're not saved, or, or even you could lose your salvation. There are a few verses that seem hard to understand. There's a, there are a few of those places where if I think if you begin to study in them and you interpret them in light of other scripture and all those kinds of things, they begin to become clearer. But if you just take one verse or just these these couple of verses out of context, you can make the Bible, just like any piece of literature, say whatever you want it to say. Just like you could go from here and take one little phrase that I've said and take it completely out of context. You could leave here saying, well, Darby doesn't feed his wife enough or Darby doesn't feed his husband enough. She needs to to make more food because Clayton's not getting enough to eat. That's not what I said. You got to know what I said in context. And so to do that, we use a lot of scripture to help us determine a little. Secondly, we use the easy to interpret the hard. We use the easy to understand to interpret the hard. Another way of saying it is we use the clear to interpret the unclear. Because you will come across some things as you read the scripture that seem hard to understand. I'm not quite sure what this is saying. This seems unclear. Well, if you keep reading, a lot of times you'll begin to see the easy and the clear and it will help you know what the hard or the unclear is trying to say. For example, James says faith without works is dead. So then surely I have to have faith plus works in order to be right with God. Surely that's what that, that must mean what it's saying because faith without works is, is dead. And if you, you read James, that's, that's kind of the, the feeling that you start to get. Well, in light of all of the scripture, here's what we know to be true, that a genuine faith always produces works, just like an apple tree produces apples. It's not faith plus works, it's faith produces works. And so we use the easy, we use the clear to help us understand the hard, the unclear. So we interpret scripture with scripture. Next, we interpret scripture with Jesus. We interpret scripture With Jesus. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 5 to some of the religious, Jewish religious leaders. He said, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Jesus said, The scripture is about me, it points to me. Look what happened in Luke chapter 24, speaking of these two guys that are on the road to Emmaus and Jesus appears to them and they don't quite understand who he is yet and what's going on and, and they're confused and they're upset because they thought Jesus was the Messiah but, but now he's in the grave and, and here he stands before them and look what happens. is then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses, all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says Moses, the prophets, all the scripture. It's all about me. And so we interpret scripture Christocentrically, which is just a big word that means Christ is the center of the scripture. It's about him. The children's Bible that we use in our kids' classes is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the tagline for the Bible, it gives me chills. It says, every story whispers his name. Every story whispers the name of Jesus. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is here. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus is coming again. Every story whispers his name. And so we interpret the scripture in light of Christ. We do it Christocentrically that Christ in terms, meaning Christ is the center of the scripture. Next, we interpret scripture with Repetition. Paul told Timothy, you got to work hard. It's a skill. And so the more that you do it, the more that you train, the the stronger that you get. Same is true with reading the scripture. The more that you read the scripture, the easier it is to understand. The more that you get it, the easier it is to apply to your life because the more you repeat and you do this over and over and over again, the stronger spiritually you get and the easier time you have with it. Psalm 1, meditate on the word day and night. Joshua one, God tells Joshua, don't let this book of instruction, this book of all depart from your mouth, meditate on it day and night. We do it over and over. No, I'm not sure I quite understand this. I keep reading more and more and more. I'm not totally sure I understand this. I keep reading more and more and more. You repeat it over and over and over again. You know, as a college, one of my best friend's dad was a spiritual mentor to me. We were praying together and I happened to open my eyes in in prayer, which is, you know, obviously a huge no, no. And so but I opened my eyes anyways. And and so I I looked I happened to look down at his Bible and here's what I saw on his Bible. All these tick marks. I said, what is that? He said, well, I just keep track of the number of times I've read a certain book. And I looked at that and I was like, oh wow, that's, that's a lot of times. And man, it just inspired me, it motivated me, it challenged me to do the exact same thing. And so this isn't a picture of his Bible, it's a picture of my Bible. I've done that on every book of the Bible. And I'm not trying to say anything about me, I'm trying to tell you something about him and what he inspired me to do with God's word, to meditate on it day and night. So get you a Bible, get your Version app, start a reading plan and start reading God's word because with repetition, you'll notice you'll begin to look more and more like Jesus. That's sanctification. And with repetition, you'll get better and better at interpretation. That's understanding and applying God's word. So we interpret with repetition. And then finally, after all of that, we interpret scripture with help. We interpret scripture with help, uh, a, a pastor, a community, uh, a church, uh, a commentary. We interpret scripture with help. We get help from other people, especially when there's something we don't quite understand. We get help from others as a complement, not as a substitute. A lot of us know more about what Beth Moore thinks or what, you know, some other author thinks about something than what we think about what the scripture says, because we've spent no time actually reading it ourselves. We've only heard about what other people believe the Bible says. Most of us have heard a lot more sermons and messages than we've actually spent time ourselves reading the Bible. And those things are great. They're a great compliment. They're not a substitute. You need to be devouring and reading God's word yourself because God wants to speak directly to you. Sure, he's gonna speak through me and others to you and to help you in your spiritual growth. Sure, he's going to do that. He uses the community to do that. But God wants to speak directly to you one-on-one as you study and devour and meditate on his word day and night. Scripture is our highest authority. I said this a couple of weeks ago. It's not me, it's not another pastor, it's not your favorite author. None of those things are our highest authority. The scripture alone is our highest authority. And you know, that was one of the doctrines that was recaptured in the Protestant Reformation. For a long time, Christians were completely reliant upon the Pope's interpretation of the scripture and what the Pope told them or what their priest told them was true. And then Martin Luther and other reformers came along and said, no, 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 you're not the final authority. You are not my authority. The scripture is my final authority. And so they came up with these things called the five solas. It's Latin for alone. And there was a lot of other doctrine that came out of the Protestant Reformation, but the five biggies are known as the five solas, faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, God's glory alone. And then this last one, the fifth one, sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. Scripture alone is our final authority. It's not me. It's not you. It's not your favorite author. It's not that podcast. It's not that book. It, it, it's not Scripture alone is our final authority. Whatever it says is what goes. And so you might be thinking, well, how did we get to this place in our culture and in the church today? And that's a great question. If this is God's word and this is what God wanted and and this is God's will, then how did we get to this place in our culture and even in the church today? Two reasons. Number one, rebellion. The Bible says that when you're born, you're born into sin and we spend the rest of our lives doing what Adam and Eve did. Did God really say that? That's the rebellion that's in you and I from the very beginning. Did God really say that? And it's true, even for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we still battle with this flesh," Paul said. There's a war that goes on. And as the old hymn says, our hearts are prone to wonder. We wander away from God. We wander away from His truth, because of the rebellion that's still in us, in this flesh. then secondly it's because of our arrogance we actually think we know more than god we don't like what god's word said i'm going to come up with a better idea i've got a different idea and we put ourselves in the place of god god said this in psalm chapter 50 god says to the wicked you made the mistake of thinking that i am like you i'm not like you God says his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Paul says when, when we're left to our own ideas, we think up foolish ideas of who God is and, and what he's like and what he wants. We come up with foolish ideas, but in our arrogance, we think we're wise. We think we're smart. And by coming up with new ideas about who God is, what he's like and what he wants, that's foolish. All we do is trade the truth of God for a lie that's going to kill us and destroy us. and So because of our rebellion, because of our arrogance, we've put ourselves in the place of God. We don't bow down to God's word. We bow up and we come up with our own ideas. Surely the Bible's outdated. Surely as a culture, we've progressed beyond the Bible. We have better ideas now. That comes from rebellion and arrogance. And so here's my challenge for you. It's kind of the challenge for this whole series. It's why we're talking about this, the authority of the Bible, the history of the Bible, is so that you could be confident to say this and to make this your prayer. Choose God's prosperity over culture's progress. Psalm 1, you meditate on God's word day and night, you're going to prosper. Joshua 1, you never let this book of the law depart from your mouth. You will Prosper in the land that I'm going to give you. God wants you to prosper. And God wants this culture. He wants our country to prosper. That's God's will. But it only happens by doing things his way. All throughout the scripture, God says, see, I've set before you life and death. Choose life. Do things my way and choose life. You do things your way, you're going to die. You're going to be destroyed. And so choose my way. Choose Prosperity, My prosperity over what the culture says is progress. Now you might say, well, there's a lot of things that have come from progress in our country. There's a lot of things we've left behind, we've turned away from that we don't think are right anymore that we did think were right in the past and you would be right. But those things are in line with God's word. And if we choose God's prosperity, it will always lead to progress in our culture, but we can never choose cultural progress in the culture's terms and by the culture's definition of progress over the prosperity that God wants for us. It will get us in trouble every time because we will think up new ideas to progress beyond the Bible, beyond God's revealed will and his Word, and we come up with foolish ideas. But if we will choose God's prosperity It will not only lead to prosperity in our lives, it will lead to prosperity in our culture's life. And so God said this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 47, these instructions are not empty words. Some translations say they are not idle. These are not idle words. They are your life. These words are your life. And by obeying them, you will enjoy a long life. You will prosper in the land you will occupy when you cross the Jordan River. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want you to listen to this as I read it. And pray and ask God to speak to you through these words that he wrote through the prophet Isaiah. This is what the Lord says. Some translations say, thus saith the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is good for you and leads you along the paths you should follow. Oh, that you would have listened to my commands. Then you would have had peace flowing like a gentle river and righteousness rolling over you like waves in the sea. Your descendants would have been like sands along the seashore, too many to count. There would have been no need for your destruction or for your cutting off from your family name. Thus saith the Lord. Oh, that you would listen to my commands and choose life, that I might prosper you, your family, and your country. Would you stand? Our team's gonna lead us in worship. And as we worship, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together here in just a minute. Brandon will tell you and lead you when you can come and and do that. But as they lead as we finish out this series tonight. I want to remind you that each week we've talked about the basis of the authority and the history of the Bible and the revelation that we have in God's word. It's all based on Jesus. Jesus said all of this points to him. We trust that this is God's word because Jesus said it is. We believe that we still have God's word because Jesus said his words would never pass away. And we believe that all of the scripture points to Jesus and tells us how to be saved, how to be right with God and how to grow spiritually. So it's all about him. And at that last supper with his disciples, Jesus took the bread. He said, this represents my body that was broken for you. As often as you eat it, do so in remembrance of me. Remember that I died in your place and my body was broken for you. And when you drink this cup, remember it was my blood that was shed for you on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. Remember when you eat it and when you drink it, remember it was me who rescued you from your sin. It was me who became sin for you so that those of us who are in Christ would be the righteousness of God. And so God, we worship and we take the Lord's Supper, remembering that all of the scripture points us back to Jesus. It's all about you, Jesus. And so we worship you and you alone. Our faith is in you and you alone. And we take this meal, remembering what you've done for us.